Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Welcome. I'm Linda Crater, and I'm very glad to welcome you to our show today. We have a really interesting show talking about caregiving, which I'm sure many of you are caregivers. There are 64 million caregivers in the United States. Five and a half of them, five and a half million, are in the military. And we're going to be talking today to Holly Farrell, who's the executive director of Veteran Warriors, which is a veteran service organization, a VSO, that helps caregivers navigate the medical system. And there's very specific things on the military side, but those of you on the civilian side will recognize a lot of similar points in that navigating a medical system is very tricky. It's labyrinthine. You're told one thing here and another thing over here. And the confusion and lack of clarity in communication makes things more difficult than it needs to be. So we're going to talk today about, well, first of all, why caregivers are so vital to quality of life. But there are also some changes for the military caregivers right now. And there are many, many questions. So today's show will focus on clarifying and updating some points that have been made in just the last week. And we will come back when further changes are made by the Department of Veteran Affairs and talk about those as well. But some of these things are general, like good record keeping, documentation, communication. Those things are good for veteran or civilian caregivers. So, Holly, we have a a lot to cover today. Welcome to our show. Thanks. We're happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. I think one of the things that has been so difficult about the caregiver program, and both you and I have been involved since its inception, which was in 2011, it, a lot of things, medical systems especially, are based upon communicating qualifying factors, requirements, um, how you have to participate how you are included. And when there is confusion over any of that, it makes it very difficult. So for the background, for those who are not familiar with this, there is a caregiver program known by a much longer name that will just give the initials PCAFC in the Department of Veteran Affairs that helps those who are injured, mostly in combat, but not always. And these are people who need additional assistance for the activities of daily living. And in recent years, it was only for post 9-11 veterans and their caregivers were in the program. But that has recently changed. And with an expansion in a bureaucracy as large as the Department of Veteran Affairs, there can be a lot of hiccups. And so we have all navigated these, many of us for years. Holly is the caregiver of her husband, as well as 
uh, the executive director of Veteran Warriors. And so let's talk a little bit about how it started out and what the intention was, and then when the expansion came. So when it started out, it was solely for post 9-11. They focused heavily on PTSD, as that was one of the primary factors for all post 9-11 veterans. Um, And it was to provide a caregiver, so to speak, for the post 9-11 generation, which was typically younger. You were looking 20 to 40 years old. There were no resources available for that cohort. And now we have gotten to where it is expanding to all veterans. Uh The focus has shifted a bit from mental health to ADLs. ADLs has always been part of the equation, but the focus now is heavier on ADLs. And there appears to be a disconnect for neurological impairments and for mental health. I want to add one thing here. PTSD was one of the signature injuries of those wars, but so was traumatic brain injury. And so when we're talking mental health, we're talking about organic brain health as well as mental health and the focus on ADLs. Again, tell people what ADLs stands for. Activities of daily living. These are your basic activities of daily living, dressing, bathing, grooming, um, orthopedic devices, prosthetic devices, ambulation, transferring. Mm -hmm. So as this is, as this ran before it with just post 9-11 prior to the expansion, do you feel that there were was a good understanding of the eligibility and people knew what to expect in terms of what was written and, and what you were questioned on and evaluated on. Yes, um, before the expansion, there was more transparency. There was something called a scoring methodology that was used and veterans and caregivers had access to the scoring methodology. They knew how it was done, for instance, if you were independent, you were scored as zero. If the veteran required assistance with 75% of the ADL, they would be scored at four, which is considered total. Uh So if the veteran is unable to complete, you know, at least 75%, then they are scored at total, but it was broken down into a scoring system. They also knew what they were being scored. Yes. Okay, so as you go on, and you do have a scoring system and you can understand it, I know from advocating, you and I both know that when we talk to caregivers in the post-911 group, we could say, this is why you were not included. This may be something you need to document more. And if you could speak to the documentation, because that is an overall issue for qualification for any program. Yes, it is. And documentation. <laughs> she is says heavy. with a heavy sigh, right? Um, I mean, we had issues before the expansion, but after the expansion, it has only been more issues. Most of the problems come from providers not documenting in the manner that VA wants them to document for this program specifically. Okay. For example, most providers do not document if a caregiver is present. It doesn't matter whether you're civilian or military or VA. They just do not document presence of a caregiver. 
if you have a condition that is never going to improve, the likelihood of a provider documenting that, you know, you're going to need one of the requirements is six months of assistance from a caregiver. Mm-hmm. They're not going to document that if you are not expected to improve because things of that nature are documented for goals. So if you are in rehab and you are going through physical therapy and one of your goals is to be able to stand unassisted, they would document a time such as six months or three months. But as far as your ADLs, they're not going to say a veteran with, for example, one of the things we're seeing right now is Parkinson's. A veteran with Parkinson's is going to need at least six months of caregiver support. They're not going to document that. So if you have a need that is not expected to improve, that's not documented, but that's something the program expects and is required of the providers. There's also another issue here, too, is that you're talking about such a huge medical system. And the physicians, even though they're the ones seeing the veterans, they aren't as familiar with the requirements for this program. So they don't even know that they are to be documenting that or that that documentation has to be included. I know that teaching caregivers that this needs to be included can at least bring it up in a conversation but it's very difficult to force a physician to write something in the records that they don't know about or feel uncomfortable with yes particularly when they don't know what exact verbiage is expected Mm -hmm. so if they say veteran requires indefinite assistance and the caregiver program staff goes in and they do a control left search for six months or more, they are not going to identify indefinite or something of that nature. So it's a big mess right now. It's always been a pretty big mess since about 2015, 2016 Mm -hmm. with documentation, but now particularly documentation is an issue. And it's not that we fault the providers. It is the lack of clinical indication. It's knowledge and, and not everyone knows about what are the requirements and it's a huge system. Yes. And we're not just talking about internal VA. Um, VA also has community care providers that are contracted with VA. And then you have civilian providers that veterans see outside of VA that are not within the community care network. Yet all documentation must be in the VA medical system record keeping. That is another issue. Your outside records are, you're expected to actually have them sent to VA and uploaded, but we know that even providers faxing documentation to VA, they are not always uploaded into VISTA. The same with caregivers delivering Mm -hmm. documentation or mailing documentation. So another issue we face is that caregivers are unable to actually identify when and if outside records are ever even uploaded because you can't see that on your, what they call my healthy vet. So that's where we see our provider documents and whatnot. You can't see uploaded notes. There are so many questions. I'm so pleased to share that AARP is an amazing sponsor of our show. And we are talking about caregiving today, and that is where I have found more of my resources 
from AARP during the pandemic and now after the pandemic. And I, I've been very impressed with the advocacy that they provide, but also the fact that we will all need or be a caregiver at some point. So with Family Spread Nationwide, AARP's resources and support are invaluable. And at AARP.org, forward slash wise, you'll find all your areas of interest with a special $12 new membership offer for our listeners. Let's talk about things like social isolation and community, communication with older drivers and safety, hearing loss, questions about social security and financial assistance. And in my case, a lot on caregiving with Alzheimer's and dementia because family caregiver support hits close to home for me. And with these resources, it's been a huge help. I think most of us have a set idea of, you know, AARP for discounts, and that's true. But there are many more resources that we want to point out because there are such great resources through the magazine and through other means of podcasts and webinars and things on the AARP.org website that take advantage of. So try the benefits for yourself. Go to aarp.org forward slash wise to join for just $12 for your first year with automatic renewal. You'll also get a second membership for free, plus AARP the magazine and a free gift. That's aarp.org forward slash wise. aarp.org forward slash wise. Of these questions, what we're looking at are a number of parties involved. So you have the physicians, you have the staff, you have appointment making, you have social workers who are running the caregiver program, you have patient advocates, you have so many layers that I think we can all agree that making a message consistent between everyone requires superlative training and testing and qualifications and retesting. And, and yet again, going enterprise wide where the VA is divided into many categories, this alone has been an uphill battle. That is definitely true. <laughs> So we've got documentation, we've got communication. And then when we went to the Mission Act, which changed the criteria. All right, so let's talk about this first. Legacy caregivers are those who were in the program prior to October 1st of 2020. And that's a term that the VA will ask, are you a legacy caregiver, etc." Newer ones have been evaluated since that time period. And when messages are not given to specific cohorts in different ways. So the Vietnam vets were the next group that were uh, expanded for help. And getting the consistency, do you have any suggestions for getting consistency in communication and clarification? Our biggest recommendation would be that the caregiver program look for clinical indicators and have training on those clinical indicators because there is no way possible to have every provider within the nation, not just within VA, but all providers mm -hmm. document in the manner that they want. So it would be easier to 
identify clinical indicators and the notes do have the clinical indicators mm -hmm. which support the need but that's one of our things we're trying to push well it makes sense because then it's clear if you qualify it's clear if you don't qualify and there has been a recent problem that has been in the news that these legacy caregivers, when the program was expanded, the criteria for eligibility changed. And the result of that was a very broad, very brusque, very abrupt discharge of nearly 90% of those in the program because they did not fit the new criteria which probably was not the intention of the law. And so as these legacy caregivers were discharged from the program, some of them still needing help for the rest of their lives, there have been a, a lot of us advocating and working hard for uniform eligibility requirements. And you're making some headway with Veteran Warriors, Holly. Yes, we are making headway, but to backtrack one step or two, not all of them do not qualify. We are seeing inaccurate right. documentation, and I'm talking blatant lies within the medical record that doesn't even match the medical record. So we have a systemic issue with documentation mm -hmm. that disqualifies a veteran. Well, and this is devastating to a family. It, these, uh, they are paid a minimal stipend to cover for the caregiver's time because they, in most cases, cannot hold down jobs at the same time. And so it's a financial loss. But it's also a very deep emotional loss when someone says, you don't need to be taken care of anymore. Now you're out. It has caused enormous constraints, mental health issues, crises. And when you don't know why you've been discharged because it doesn't make any sense just because there isn't the word six months in your medical file, as you explained earlier, that has been a really chaotic time for veterans and their families. You want to elaborate on that? Yeah, the community right now is full of chaos and there's despair throughout the whole community. We've actually never seen morale this low and that's coming from people who are used to deployment. Mm -hmm. It's never been quite this low. Um, there's a lot of devastation. They're trying to figure out what they're going to have to do to make ends meet. But the concerns are not just financially related. It's not just that the program has discharged them. There's concerns related to the documentation and how that will impact their future care. Mm -hmm. So we have a high turnover with VA providers. And with that high turnover, a new provider comes in and reviews your documentation or your documentation gets sent to an outside provider who's new and not familiar with you. If that's the case, they review a note that appears that the veteran has improved drastically as, you know, they went from needing a pretty moderate to high level of care. And now it says independent across all areas. And when we get to that point, that runs the risk of the pharmacy doctor discontinuing medication and not filling medication. It causes issues with continuity of care, with your care plan, and that puts veterans and caregivers in a really difficult situation. What puts them at risk? Yes, definitely. Risk is not something you want to add to this equation. And as you describe some of these stories, it makes perfect sense why there is confusion there. Um, 
I'm sorry if I didn't clarify enough that these discharges were not because they were not eligible eligible. It is because the way things were being reviewed were discharging people who were eligible but did not have that documentation or did not know how to communicate differently because you can really get caught up in these evaluations. And I think one thing that has to be understood is that a, a veteran asked questions is going to answer them in a different manner than a caregiver is. And there's a lot of pride involved. You're talking about people who were independent, very, very uh, talented at what they did. And suddenly they're now being told that they're all better, they don't need care, and we're not paying attention to your medical records. So it's demeaning, it can be very humiliating, but it also can create backlash issues, such as renewed PTSD, lack of trust, and those sorts of things are much harder to get over than you know, the continuity of care with a physical ailment. They are. It's brought up a lot of issues that were previously buried. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much opening a wound that was not previously healed. Um, you're going back and these assessments are bringing back traumas, not just for those with mental health, but also those with physical injury. And they're having to rehash their injuries, whether it be mental health or physical they're having to go through all of it over again. And it's not just one time. Uh -uh. This is a multi-step assessment. So you are going through two to four hours per assessment and you have four to five different assessments to do with different individuals going over the same documentation over and over. And then you have to rehash it every quarter for your quarterly reassessment. So you are going backwards as far as focusing on what a veteran can do and you're focusing on what a veteran can't do it's it's still moralizing it's extremely painful for the veteran and the caregiver they're losing all of their dignity and there's really just no clear-cut way to explain this nothing of this nature would ever happen within the civilian world so it's very difficult for those who are not involved to understand well, I think bureaucracy is understood. I, I think that everybody knows that it's hard to navigate a bureaucracy. We also know that there have been much better communication in recent weeks as caregivers began to talk to each other more. There was more of a, you know, did this happen to us? Did this happen to you? And when that happens, you start to see patterns across the enterprise, which is very helpful, actually, to those advocating because you can get a bigger picture on where are the holes and what can we do to fill them? What are some of the solutions? And getting the solutions heard is not always easy. Being heard in general is a skill that many could work on. And it is one of those things that some progress is being made. I want to emphasize that. And I don't want to shortchange some of the things that have been changed just because of the actions of advocates for caregivers in the last couple of weeks specifically. And so about, it was what, last Thursday, Friday? there was a pause put in place 
by the Department of Veteran Affairs. Want to take it from there? So the pause was put into place on the 22nd, um, just one day before the Senate commuting hearing, which was focused on this program. Mm -hmm. They re-established, so to speak, the pause last Friday um, when an order went out from National to all of the staff to make contact with those veterans who had been notified of discharge um, that the suspension was in place. One of the issues is that even if a veteran has social media, they are not necessarily following or their caregiver is not necessarily following any of the advocacy organizations. They're not in caregiver or veteran groups. Maybe they just haven't had time to get on social media because a lot of caregivers are dealing with a lot a of lot. issues. Right. <laughs> their plates are full. So we have that. But there are some who were unaware of the discharges. They There's a lot of confusion about what does this suspension mean, especially for those of us who have been through the pauses and suspensions before. But this agenda with this current action on Friday was to touch base with these legacy participants specifically to let them know there is a pause. They will not be discharged during the pause. And it will hopefully, you know, bring some kind of peace of mind over the next few weeks as they're looking into these regulations. Because when you get that notification of discharge, it is very stressful. And that's one of the things we're seeing within the community. The interesting part is, though they have been contacted, there's not always consistency in the messaging that has been done. So one of the reasons we are doing this program today is to make sure that people do understand what it means. I'm, I'm going to throw out some words that have been used, and I'd like you to correct them or place them in the proper context. Reinstated. Reinstated means that your assessment has been retracted, that the assessment is no longer in your record would be the technical sense of it. Because as long as the statement, oh, sorry, long as the record remains in the record, we have an issue with continuity of care. We have an issue with the decision. It poses a lot of problems. Reinstatement is supposed to mean that you are reinstated. You are not being discharged at all the assessment is null and void rescinded. Is that being put in the records? That is not being put in the records. That's why I, I'm putting these words out here, because sometimes people are saying, I, it's all good, I've been reinstated. And that is not what this pause is about. Talk about what the VA will be doing during this pause. So during this pause, VA has stated that they are going to review the criteria and that they are going to, if they see a need for it, to create um, new criteria. It's unclear right now whether that new criteria will be across the board for all eras because initially post 9-11 um, and then we open to Vietnam and earlier. So Vietnam, Korean War and World War II veterans uh -huh. in October 1, 2020. We're getting ready to open up to the Gulf War era. Everybody who served between 1975 and September 1101. Uh -huh. So we are concerned about whether this new criteria is going to be across the board or if it's solely going to be for legacy 
We do know there will be a new interim rule. Again, we do not know if it's solely for legacy. There is supposed to be a new assessment being created. Um, one of the positives that have come in the last few days is that the wellness assessments are no longer 12 pages long. It's five to six Excellent. questions. It's right. not focusing on, you know, the impacts of veteran. It is solely to check to see if the veteran has what they need and the caregiver needs anything. The, it, these are interesting points, though. The reason we bring them up is because let's clear up the confusion. The pause is for a reevaluation and creation of this interim rule, which is a, an official documentation that the VA will file so that everybody supposedly knows exactly what is happening next. Because words and social media posts, etc., cetera, are, are not official. And that is good news about the wellness check for sure. And the, the reason that we're pleased about the pause is because they're going to take a look at what people have been commenting on now for quite some time, two years. And don't forget that we've also been going through COVID during this time period, making care all the more difficult for caregivers, for the veterans, even for the VA system at large. So you're looking at a, a really strong perfect storm of time where having this kind of confusion really added to the stressors of the families. Would you like to add anything to that before we go on break? Um, that's, that's a loaded question. We might need to wait till break. <laughs> we, we can wait till after the break. No problem at all. We just want to take care that we are saying what is accurate today and once things change, we'll update you. So thank you for listening today. We're going on a short break. We'll be right back. We're talking with Holly Farrell, Executive Director of Veteran Warriors. And we're talking about caregiving and the vital need for quality of life for those who are injured. And for caregivers in the civilian world, you know that this is a heavy load to carry as well. So we'll be back after this short break. Don't go away. And you can find out more at veteranwarriors.org. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. Close your eyes and imagine living your life without limits. Where would you go? Who would you meet? What would you do? During an Uncover Your Hidden Genius session, you will discover what's keeping you from living your life with purpose, passion, and fulfillment of your potential. You'll get a clear vision of the steps you need to take to uncover your hidden genius so that you can live a life without limits. Sessions can be done over the phone, Skype, or in person. Find out more at www.JoyceBufordEmpowers.com or by calling 903-287-0747. Help me, TogiNet. You're my only hope. I want to start a podcast, but I simply don't have time. How do I take care of the details? Editing? Contacting guests? Where do I put it so that people can listen in? Fear not. The podcasting wizards here at TogiNet can take care of all of the details because we provide full-service podcasting for all of our hosts so that you can focus on your message. We even 
build you a web page that you can edit. And we send your podcast out to Spotify and iTunes so that your message is easy to find. Wow, you can do all of that? You've magically cured my anxiety. Where do I sign up? You can find all of our packages on our website, toginet.com. That's T-O-G-I-N-E-T.com. If you would like to talk to one of us, call us at 903-787-5880 or email us at staff at toginetradio.com. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion about veteran caregivers. And in the process of these discharges, there's something that you could do called an appeal if you thought that they made a mistake. I mean, all of us are are pretty familiar with if you get bounced off Facebook, you can appeal why they did that and, and go back. Well, an appeal of a caregiver discharge runs the same way, but there's a process that has to be followed. And so there have been a lot of questions of, okay, during this pause, I was discharged and I was about to appeal, what do I do? And I'd like you to take that question. So one of the things you should do if you are a legacy participant is continue your appeal process. You should go ahead and be prepared once this suspension is lifted to file your appeal if necessary, or you can continue and file your appeal now. One of the keys for legacy is that you have to appeal, but you are not required to appeal right now because you do not yet have your official notification of action. You have an advanced notification. So prior plan was for legacy to be notified Um, with official letter of discharge and appeal dates on October 1, 2022. So the earliest legacy would have to file for a clinical appeal would be December 1, 2022. That timeline is not the same for the newcomers who came after October 1, 2020, though. Uh But as far as legacy, the best thing you can do at this point is to continue gathering your documentation, continue going to your appointments, if you have an appeal because you have a an adverse decision, you should go ahead and continue preparing that appeal. You don't have to file right now, but in the event that history repeats itself as it has before, at least you have your appeal ready to go and are not scrambling to gather documentation, and that causes additional stress. Not to mention that when we say gather documentation, if you hadn't realized until now that you lacked the community provider information into the upload into the VA's medical record, or you're collecting new tests that have been done and results of those, that's a process that takes some time. So we're suggesting using this pause while the VA is reviewing the criteria and before they issue the directive to take a look at those medical records. Most of us, if you look at your own medical records, you'll be surprised what's there, what's missing, what's misworded. Most of it's not intentional. It's just they're in a rush and they've written it this way. This is a universal problem, both civilian and military. 
But in the case of eligibility for these programs, your medical records must be consolidated in the VA medical electronic medical record system. And if they're not, it's as though it didn't exist. Am I misstating that? No, that's correct. And the other part of it is context. Um, because a provider knows what they are stating, but there may be a lack of context as far as someone else who's reading and interpreting it. And that's really a critical component right now. Not only that, but there are many who work through different specialty, specialties and care, and they don't sometimes talk to one another. And so, you know, and that's a universal problem as well. But the documentation, if you have it and it needs to be uploaded, you want to walk them through it or shall I? Oh, that's a loaded process also. So if you have outside documentation that you need, <laughs> you're getting a flow, right? I mean, it's all loaded process. It's very convoluted. That's the best way right. to put it. It's tedious. Definitely. Um, and all processes are not the same either. So you speak to three people, you're going to get three different perspectives or three different pieces of guidance, however you wish to view it. Mm -hmm. When you are seeing community care providers, they are supposed to upload into the VA community care network portal so that it's automatically loaded into VA. That's not always the case, but if you are seeing those who are not within community care who have not been given a referral, you are just seeing an outside regular provider, maybe you're using TRICARE, you may be using Medicare, private insurance, or whatever. Those records have to be uploaded into Joint Legacy Viewer or to Vista Imaging, which are both systems within VA medical records that the veteran and the caregiver cannot review. So you cannot verify that you have your records uploaded even if you submit them. We have people right now who have submitted documents last year or from 2020, and mm -hmm. for some reason, VA has not uploaded them or the caregiver program is not able to pull them. They are not being referenced, and that is also another issue we should probably touch on yes. is that the caregiver program staff are not going into other systems to view your records. So it's it's really tedious. I would come back to the point, though, that has been a problem forever. And that is when you hand off your records and you cannot double check, you, you're not given any confirmation. This is, again, clarity and communication. And communication works best when it's two-way, not just that the responsibility is on the caregiver to make sure that the records are handed to the VA, but the VA also needs to acknowledge they've received them, they've uploaded them, and here's a link that we confirm these are now in your records. There are also times when there have been mistakes at the medical records which need to be corrected. Again, something we're suggesting doing during this pause. So if you look at medical records, and you see that there are errors, and, and sometimes people are writing in records of other veterans, and that is rare, but it happens, and so you want to make sure they're correct. Those corrections must be made and uploaded as well. That is correct, but like you said, we have no way of verification. Right. 
there is no verification process. You cannot see the records. Um, and that's another thing. If you have to provide context, you don't actually know what you're providing context to. You don't know what they have or have not read. You don't know what they've reviewed. The whole system has a problem. And that's one of the things we are hoping to work with VA on to fix is the systemic issue that has caused problems to avoid those problems, particularly for those who are not post 9-11. Post 9-11 is accustomed to their documentation. Uh Um, They know how to navigate that system. But those who are pre post 9-11, they don't have the level of documentation that post 9-11 has. Um, They have really had a struggle for those who are currently eligible because of that documentation, the lack of clarity. And that's something we are trying to work on to fix so that Gulf War era does not experience this. Um, The Vietnam and earlier era were warned by post 9-11 to gather their documents, ensure everything was in the record prior to, you know, October 1 expansion. They had two years and they thought that just because they had certain conditions, they would be fine. That's not the case. And now they are voicing their concerns and telling Gulf War, hey, you all need to go ahead and get this documentation. Make sure you're going to your appointments. Make sure it's getting clarified because this is what we were experiencing. And post 9-11 was accurate on that. So we really need these veterans to ensure their documents are accurate. And now is the time to do that. Most because the, the accuracy must be there. And as I said, if it's not in the VA medical record system, it's as though it did not exist. And so if you say, but, but, but I, you know, gave it to you, um, to me, some of the verification pieces are the easiest to fix because you're talking receipt and return and answers and responses. And yet, that has been one of the prevailing problems since 2011. Yes, it definitely has. And I don't know how we're going to get around this issue with the documentation. We really need a process in place for verification and such, because even in my position and with, you know, my husband is a veteran who receives care at VA. He also receives care outside of the VA. Mm -hmm. But when we are submitting documentation, We can't verify that it's uploaded, and I know it's uploaded. We've had his providers upload it. Providers have referenced it because they have reviewed it, but even someone in my position who knows how to navigate the VA system, Mm -hmm. if I am having the issues I am with my husband's records, then I can only imagine what those who have no idea where medical records even are or even know how to access my healthy vet to view the blue button blue button is the record system that you can view online for VA medical records. So not only if that, I'm having not that, every, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Not every veteran or caregiver speaks English as a first language. Yes, that is a big issue. Um, we have several caregivers that we are having to help navigate the system in some of the terminology even for those who do speak the English language, is very different than that of the civilian world. So they're having to navigate a whole new lingo and new, you know, 
I don't I don't want to say new verbiage and new terms because they're the same terms, but they have different meaning mm -hmm. and the processes are different. Let's move to the, the final portion that I think is was problematic, continues to be problematic, and we want to lay that to rest here, is that when the caregiver program was established only for post 9-11 caregivers, that fomented a lot of discontent among Vietnam vets, other vets of other eras, because if you're a vet, you served your country, why aren't you all being treated the same? And unfortunately, it divided and pitted eras of those who served against other eras. And one of the things that Veteran Warriors is pushing for very hard is equal criteria and eligibility for those of all eras. So there isn't any of this, and it's a unified group that can work together to educate each other and the providers as they go forward. Yeah, there's a long-standing history of division, particularly with this program. Um, our stance, as you're aware, has been from the beginning that one era shouldn't work against another. Mm -hmm. A veteran is a veteran, and to give a very vivid picture of it, the example that I typically use, because it's very difficult, you know, to put yourself in someone else's shoes. If you have a veteran who's right-hand dominant and they are missing their right arm, that veteran's needs, just because they served in, say, the Korean War, is no different than a veteran who's right-hand dominant with a missing arm who served in Gulf War or post-9-11 their needs are going to be a little different individually, but you're going to have that no matter the area you serve. You can have two post-9-11 missing right arms who are right-hand dominant, mm -hmm. and they're going to have different needs. One may be completely independent, may have adjusted well, but another may be heavily dependent on someone. But what we have tried to get the heirs to understand because of this division that the program's rule has created is that the veterans themselves did not create these rules. VA created the rules. Congress wrote the law. Do not fight against your fellow veterans or their caregivers because the needs do not discriminate. Your need for assistance with cognitive impairment is no different than the needs of, you know, someone who is post 9-11 or Gulf if you are a Vietnam veteran. Cognitive impairment is cognitive impairment. So we need to look at it as a whole and say, okay, well, let's look at this veteran's individual needs. One of the focus has been amputees. Mm -hmm. And while we can all sympathize with amputees, there are a lot of amputees who are fully independent, who live fuller lives and can do things that those with all of their limbs and who have particularly neurological impairments mm -hmm. cannot do. So that's been one of our focuses. Another has been trying to get the errors to work together. Mm -hmm. One of the things we do not want to see that we have a feeling may be coming based on some of the things that have been said publicly is we don't want there to be separate criteria and we don't want there to be separate assessments based on your errors served. That is still error discrimination and can still knock out a lot of people from participating in this program. Um, one of the things we're seeing 
like we mentioned, the Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. A lot of Vietnam and Korean veterans have Parkinson's, MLS, ALS. And one of the things that's not noted is that those are neurological impairments. Those are impairments to your nervous system. Mm-hmm. There's a common confusion, and we're trying to get around this, that neurological impairment is not directed at mental health. PTSD, generalized anxiety, schizophrenia, those are not neurological impairments. Those are mental right. health disorders. So we needed a vision there. We do. And the prevalence of traumatic brain injury in the younger vets was high, but it's also in the other eras. It just wasn't recognized in those days as it is now or or as easily as it is now. That is for sure. And one of the things with that is, could they have been diagnosed if they had pushed? And they could have. But we've also progressed in our medical technology. So we are much further ahead. But that doesn't mean just because a Vietnam veteran does not have PTSD or not PTSD, I'm sorry, TBI in their record or is rated for such that they do not have a TBI. There are extensive studies that show, you know, head injuries with loss of consciousness will result in TBI. It will have some sort of impairment. Uh May differ in the level, but still it's there. And that's another focus across the board is just because a veteran is not rated for something doesn't mean they don't have it. Um, There are some things that are universal. Well, I think it's also important to note that the Vietnam era veterans, for example, really were treated very differently when they returned. And many did not seek VA care until they became much older. My uncle was told to change out of his uniform at the restroom in San Francisco's airport. And so there's some reluctance. There's some anger. There's a difference in how people were treated. But what I am seeing more recently is more cohesion among the different eras. As you said, a veteran should not be fighting against another veteran. But the criteria do need to be clear enough that they can be applied objectively with a scoring system, hopefully, because that was one way that we could explain easily to caregivers why they did or did not qualify. And in some cases, they could change those and reapply. But in some cases, you're simply not going to qualify. And I think that's important to note, too is that not everyone will qualify for this program. And there are multiple VA programs that are out there, homebound, aid and attendance, um, very varied programs. You can probably name them you know, off the top of your head. And so there needs to be clarity in who qualifies for the caregiver program and who is best directed or triaged to these other programs that also provide benefit. Can you elaborate on that? So I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people do not know that the caregiver program is managed under VHA. VHA is the Veterans Health Administration, and it's specifically managed under Patient Care Services. We use the um, acronym PCS. Um, And there are many services under VHA PCS that are the same, but you know, they, they meet different needs um, if you don't qualify for one. You may qualify for another. For example, 
veteran-directed care has the home health aid and the home health maker program. I mean, sorry, the homemaker program. Mm -hmm. There is spinal cord injury. They have a program. Um, specifically, they have the bowel and bladder program for those who require assistance for incontinence. Mm -hmm. um, there is the hospice. There is home-based primary care. There's all kinds of programs under VHA PCS. On the flip side, VHA and VBA, Veterans Benefits Administration, are two separate entities. And the Completely two, very two separate entities. And I think a lot of people don't even know that. The two rarely communicate. Mm -hmm. So the thing with that is aid and attendance and homebound, those fall under VBA. So a veteran can receive homebound and aid and attendance and caregiver or um, veteran-directed care services or any services under PCS simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And they operate in different ways. The intent of aid and attendance is to offset the expense. It's to, you know, compensate for the veteran for that need. But aid and attendance is pretty minimal overall. It does not cover the needs. Um, and something that we are hoping to get put into this regulation that's being drafted is to streamline the program's criteria and assessments because what we don't want is to continue to, you know, have a waste of services. And if you are wasting resources that could be used to help another veteran or caregiver or family or survivor or anyone, that would be beneficial than doing the same work twice. So one of our focuses is on aid and attendance. Mm -hmm. If you have special monthly compensation that includes aid and attendance, and there are different ones, there are different levels, right? then you have already been deemed to need a caregiver by VA adjudication. And we have a lot of these caregivers who uh, have veterans who have aid and attendance and they are being discharged. But what is not well understood is aid and attendance is not something that's easy to be awarded. To be awarded aid and attendance, you have to go through CMP exams, you have to have substantial medical documentation and you have to, in their definition, be so helpless that you require the assistance of another to meet your basic needs. So if we can streamline this and, you know, remove some of the stigma and yes. some of the process, then we can free up resources and save tax dollars and redirect those tax dollars to where they would be more beneficial for the community. Well, it's always been interesting that they've used the, con quote, continuum of care, that's in air quotes. And yet, if you are faced with a big bureaucracy like the Department of Veteran Affairs, and there are all these programs, and somebody said, well, just go look them up. Well, if you've ever gone to a government website, and I think almost everybody in the whole world has, you know that what's there is not telling you exactly what you need in most cases. It raises questions. And then there's not a place to triage this. So for example, if someone was triaged to, okay, you are better suited for the caregiver program, you are better served by the VBA program, state and attendance or homebound or vet directed care, that would help. But again, that's more communication between two entities that don't normally speak to one another. So that seems like more long-term goal. 
Yeah, it is more of a long-term goal. Um, but like I said, if you're looking at ratings and mm -hmm. VHA has access to every veteran's ratings, they can see whether a veteran has homebound or aid in attendance. And aid in attendance particularly is one of our focuses because that says, hey, this veteran is not independent. This mm -hmm. veteran needs a pretty high level of care, consistent care. So that would, you know, free up resources in that manner because the determination has already been made. There's no point in, you know, adding your resources and wasting your resources to go out here to assess this veteran if the veteran's already been deemed to need assistance. But the other part of it is you can, like I said, receive aid and attendance and um, any VHA service simultaneously but that's one of the things we do is we will try to triage and mm -hmm. redirect you and that's something we've long done for those who are not post 9-11 and did not qualify we would direct them to other services well the VA in general does not do that no they don't and and that's why organizations such as yours that work really at the grassroots level and spreading the word about what is possible makes a big difference because when hope dies, when despair comes in, and when there are really rigid, illogical changes that have been made in some cases, it's really important to come back with clarity, with good communication, a clear directive, clear eligibility, and as you said, that it goes across all eras. And is there a time frame for this expectation, Holly? There is not currently a time frame. We are hoping this will be the last time that we have to go through this freeze mm -hmm. and that um, the community experiences this because those, who, like I said, who have been through it, the community is very distrusting right now. And they are in the mindset of show me, prove it, what's different. So they're very guarded right now. There is no time frame. Um, the last moratorium we had, we were just coming out of. Right. And that was December of 2018. So here we are at April 2022, and we've just been put into another moratorium, March 22nd. So we can understand their frustration. And we we're absolutely it understand it. I want to make sure people know exactly where to go to find out more information about veteran warriors and to find some of your documentation that is available publicly for them to find. And you go to the website veteran-warriors.org. Again, that's veteran-warriors.org. And we've been talking with Holly Farrell, who's the executive director. Holly, your work has been amazing. And I know that there are legions of caregivers who are grateful for the time and diligence put toward this rather thankless task. But it appears as though those persistent, consistent steps have truly brought this to a place where there can be hope. And we urge people to listen to this show over and over again or look at the documentation at veteran-warriors.org to find out the clear answers. Read it, print it, know it. Knowledge is power. Thank you for listening today. We are very glad that we were able to disseminate some of this information out to you. We'll be back the next time with an update. Make it a great week. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.